invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We'll be walking through portions of chapters 10 and 11 this morning. We're going to dive into this story of these two chapters. Last week, Pastor Dave covered the story of Noah, and we saw that in the baptism of the world through the flood, it brought creation through its own death and now resurrection in the life of Noah. Now from Noah's family, nations are born. Genesis 10 before us is a genealogy of sorts, a genealogy of nations. Seventy so or so are listed before we get to chapter 11, which brings us to Babylon, where an attempt is made to reconstruct a paradise. A, a new garden of Eden is attempted. Rather than being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth, humanity builds a city to gather together. Humanity builds a tower to ascend on their own accord, so God must scatter. We have before us this morning another fall. Another fall of humanity, which is once again met by God's redemption in His grace. It's that same redemptive story of God saving His people by grace, a people for His glory through death and resurrection. So that's where we're going this morning, to see the death and resurrection of God's people. To that end, will you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, living and active. As we hear your word, as we receive your word, would you conform us more to the image of your dear son, Jesus Christ, that we might reflect his glory from one degree of glory to the next in honor of you for the good of your church and for the life of the world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So now, when the risen Jesus ascends, his church is centered in Jerusalem, and we see the disciples that remain, they're very uncertain of the next steps. So what do they do? That They ascend to an upper room, and they seek communion with the living God, who then comes down. He comes down in his spirit, form of tongues of fire, anointing those present to speak in all manner of languages, all manner of tongues. And through that one language spoken, one, or through those many languages, there one message, one confession would be heard and made as followers of Jesus were scattered then through Judea, through Samaria, through the ends of the earth. Pentecost. That's not today. But we looked at Pentecost because Pentecost is an undoing, if you will. It's an undoing of the tower of Babel. And that undoing has reverberations throughout history and reaches down to us today. Now, we've been walking through Genesis this last month or so, and we've seen three times in Genesis already we have a creation, a fall, and then a redemption. We saw it in the garden. We saw it after Cain. We saw it even now after the flood where once God created his world anew, following the flood and the rainbow covenant promises, we see Genesis chapter 10, and a new humanity is formed. The nations are formed. Chapter 10, verse 1 says, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons who were born after them. Now, few things are more exciting than reading through Genesis chapter 10. But I'm not going to read through it all. Lists and genealogies are great fun. I'm going to leave that up to you. 
mostly. But I do want to just give a few highlights here. First of all, if we can see chapters 10 and 11 as a, a unit, here's how it would look. We begin chapter 10, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then right in the middle of the, the nation's story, then we've got the Tower of Babel. And then we've got the reverse. We've got the, the, the offspring of Japheth, of Ham, and then finally of the righteous line of Shem. Okay? So Genesis 10 and 11 kind of go from end to end, and the middle being the Tower of Babel. It ends with the, inherit, the, the heritage of Abraham in Genesis, leading to Genesis 12. So what we see is we, sin, we see that sin is growing. Rebellion is manifesting itself. God condemns, and then God provides salvation through the offspring of the woman who is Abraham here. Okay, so that's the story that has been going through Genesis, and it goes through all of Scripture. That's the first thing, and, and now we have at the center of that story man's rebellion. Secondly, we see there are 70 or so nations named only a few generations after the flood. It's 70. It's a summary form of humanity. There's a fullness implied here. In other places, Israel is referred to by the number 70 as the ideal nation here. So we have a table of nations before us. Now, the third thing that I just want to examine briefly is just we're going to look at a few names. We're not going to walk through a lot, but we could see from Ham's descendants, we've got Egypt and Canaan. Those are names we recognize. Those are arch enemies of God's people descending from this rebellious and sinful son of Noah, Ham. The conflict there was established for generations. Another of Ham's sons, perhaps not as familiar to us, uh, is, goes by the name of Nimrod. Now, when I was in middle school, that was like the extent of our biblical knowledge. If you were called a Nimrod, that was not a compliment, okay? And maybe it wouldn't be anyway, too. But if you said something dumb, you Nimrod, have you had that experience? Maybe it was just me, apparently. <laughs> Nimrod, he is described as a mighty man. That's a name given earlier in Genesis 4 to the sons of God or the, the Nephilim, the mighty men. They were described there as rebellious people, not to be united with by the righteous. Mighty indeed, we see that in this passage, Nimrod founds Babylon. He goes on later to found Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. These places become both enemy and exiler of God's people throughout generations. And for our purpose, looking at Nimrod, we see that he's the builder and the architect of the place called Babel. So we'll get to him in a little bit. Down to verse 25 of chapter 10, you see the name Eber. Um, and he would be the, the ancestor to all of the who are the sons of Eber or the Hebrews, the Hebrews. This is the ancestry for all who would take the name of Hebrew. In 1029, we've got a guy by the name of Jobab, and that's thought by many commentators to possibly be Job. Now, these last two descend with others from the righteous branch of Shem, the line through which the offspring of Eve would spring forth from Abraham, then to Jacob, to Joseph, to David, to Jesus Christ. These all who I'm named prior to Christ are glorious representatives of Christ, pointing ever and always forward to him. And we who follow Jesus Christ are the same, just pointing back to him and up to him now. Was that enough of Genesis 10 for you? There's a lot in there, so I don't mean to make light of it. And it's true, these names can be 
somewhat boring to just read as a list. But they're significant. They're important because they are the canvas in which God paints the portrait of his redemptive work. His recreative brushstrokes, imaging his grace, his mercy, his love, take place amongst these names, these places, these people. The nations are the courtyard of God's temple house. They're the land outside the holy place of Eden. The land that is ever east of Eden and her garden sanctuary. So our names and the names of those who have gone before us comprise the places in which we inhabit today amongst the nations. In neighborhood and in church gathered today, we the church are not mere abstractions. And our neighbor is not a mere abstraction, but we are flesh and blood. We live and breathe our faithfulness and our rebellion. We in Christ hide ourselves in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We live in the confines of these nations, making disciples of all nations. And we must humbly acknowledge that the roots of sin leading to chapter 11 in the generations at Babel, why those roots of sin are alive and well in our hearts as well. So what about this Tower of Babel? Chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had a brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now... In echo of words to Adam, Noah was given uh, the, the same command to, as he forms a new community, a new humanity. God commanded them, and you, Noah and offspring, you be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly, and fill the earth. But what we see at chapter 11 is that people are migrating from the east. Now, they're wise to go west. That's the image of going to Eden, going towards the sanctuary. But they're migrating all to one place so that they can settle all in one place. It may not sound ominous, but it should. And it, the text tells us that they had one language and the same words. They had one language. Literally, they, they are of the same. They are of one lip. That's the word. It's lip. So when it talks about language here, it's more than common grammar and shared speech, a common singular language. What is emphasized in the, the word lip is that there's a, it's a confession, that they're saying the same thing. They all want to come together and build a city where they can inhabit only this place, and they can make a name for themselves as they build a tower. When the word lip is used in scripture, it is used as a confession of what we believe and who we are. What is Isaiah's confession? Woe is me, for what? I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. Did your mom or grandma ever tell you to not give them any lip? Yeah, we've had that. If, if we had good grandmas and moms, right? That's, don't give me any lip. I don't need that lip. That this, is, this is what they mean, and they're, they're right to correct us in that. See, whatever, whatever comment as a child we have given to our mother or grandmother that drew out that don't give me any lip, boy, whatever drew that comment is a confession from us of sass, of sarcasm, of rebellion. 
and mom and grandma are right to say, don't give me any of that lip. And what they mean is change your, not only tone, change your confession, change your heart. This is what lip is to do with, a confession. We see different languages birthed at Babel, but the emphasis is of being one lip. That is a shared confession, one faith, one baptism, one word, reflecting the fact that even after the flood, the thoughts and intentions of man were still evil. Now, what is the confession at Babel? Verse 4, then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. God is the namer of humanity. Now, he does give Adam authority to name the animals, and Adam even gives the name uh, woman. But no authority was given to Adam to name himself. To name oneself then in Genesis is to seek to become a god unto oneself. The motive here is revealed as direct opposition to God's command. Lest we be scattered. They seek a city and a tower to draw in together and to keep them in one place rather than multiplying to fill the entire earth. What is the confession? They confess that they want to make a name for themselves. Verse 5, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Now the irony, right? They're building a tower to reach up to the heavens. As, as, as magnificent, as, as great as that accomplishment is and was, God has to still come down. God has to come down. This is the central portion of our story at the Tower of Babel. God came down. Man has asserted himself, sought to elevate himself to the seat of judgment. But as scriptures tell us, whoever seeks to exalt himself will be humbled. And God came down. And as man profaned God's creation temple before the flood, so man profanes once again God's holy house, seeking to make a name for himself. So God came down. Verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, one lip, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there, and over the face of the earth they left off building the city. There's an exile happening here again, isn't it? We've already seen that in the garden. After sin entered in, God exiled them. After Cain's sin, Cain is left in exile. And we'll see Israel again and again exiled. So here we have an exile as a means of glorifying God's house. I mean, why would God confuse the lip and scatter the people? It's the same reason that he exiled Adam and Eve and flooded the earth. He is seeking to purify the profane. In scattering, he is seeking to cleanse the corrupt. He is seeking to redeem the rebel. The heart of man has been elevated, turning from the beautification of God's creation and God's house. They seek to build a house for themselves, a house in which their name would dwell. Confusion of language would put a stop to the project, at least for a time. 
And that's an important aspect of the story. But more importantly, it would interrupt their confession, the lip of their rejection and of their rebellion. Again, the wages of sin is death. It is exile from God. Back to verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. This is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing, will be, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Sin and rebellion of man will ever increase. God seems to indicate that they've only just begun. Their grasping will grow ever bolder, more rebellious if left unchecked. Isn't that the great condemnation of sin in Romans chapter 1, that God just leaves them to their own devices? And so God could leave the Tower of Babel and all of them to their own devices, but instead God comes down. And when he comes down, he scatters, he casts out. When God comes down, the foundations of humanity quake and humanity is scattered as their language is confused. God's judgment is not to flood the earth with water, but here he's to flood the earth with humanity. And this is why we confront sin. This is why we, every Sunday, we confess our sin. We invite the all-seeing eye of God to examine, to inspect as we confess, there is no hiding, there is no running or fleeing from God. Rather, we hide ourselves in his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from, over, <clears throat> from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. The word Babel, it sounds like the Hebrew word for confused, so that's how we get the name Babel here. But confusion of the language alone wouldn't scatter necessarily. It could, in fact, unite. We can't understand each other. Let's buckle down. Let's figure this out. Something beyond the confusion of languages. God intercedes here, and he scatters. Man says, let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered. And God says, no, the intention of man is to multiply and to fill the earth. God scatters as a means of glorifying God's house. We've been framing the first few chapters of Genesis as a creation of God's house. And man was seeking to dwell only in a corner of that house. But God said, you are to fill my house and to glorify it, to beautify it. God scatters as a means of glorifying his house. Now the psalmist asks, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And the Tower of Babel responds, none, none of his own accord. None, I tell you. We gave it our best. I mean, when you look at these, these peoples here, I mean, what audacity, what hubris. What are these people thinking? Who do they think they are? Now, before we get too harsh with these people, we might have to look inside ourselves a bit because the, the root of sin at Babel dwells intimately in our hearts, a, a canker that, that spreads, wounding not only ourselves but others. Do you ever have these images of becoming the greatest helper ever? Again, this could just be self confession here. I don't know. Like the neighbor comes over to borrow some sugar and you have that great joke. Well, you don't have to borrow it. You can have it though, you know. 
and uh, they borrow that, and you're like, oh, but they, and as they, you close the door, you begin to ponder, you know, they need help, that single mom, she's working so hard, I could help out with the kids, and you go for that a little bit in your mind, you picture that, and you're like, well, my neighbors over here need this help, and you begin to picture what it would be like to, to help them with their, their fence and their yard work, and then you begin to picture, well, that's not enough, the whole neighborhood could really come to depend on me a little bit, right? these are good things. And then you think, well, there's other organizations that reach a lot more than my neighborhood, and I could get in there. The thing about those organizations is that they're, they're pretty inefficient, aren't they? Man, if they had my leadership in there, that would be helpful. Wouldn't that be great? And then not only in my community, but then I could, I could affect change at the state level too. Yeah, and then at the state level, people would recognize just how important what I have to say is. And then they'll, they'll call me up to maybe serve on national committees and things like that. And then before you know it, Africa is fine. What's going on? It's fine. These are good things to help your neighbor, to love your neighborhood, the people in your community, not just humanity in general. But you see what happened in that trajectory is eventually we began to love humanity in general with a capital H and we lost sight of our neighbor. What's that? The, the problem, the part is that we begin to thrust ourselves into the, the center of these things here. What's the sin being addressed at Babel? Isn't it seeking a name for ourselves? The sins of self-centeredness and self-exaltation. It's a grasping at the center of things. And it's a grasping at the throne over all things. Now both these sins are captured with the image of grasping upward and outward. In the garden and at Cain's offering before the flood and here at Babel, a humanity is a grasping people seeking ever to make a name for themselves, to grasp at a different order of things. And in that, God is removed from the center as the human will is thrust forward. And we all know what that's like as we seek to win an argument with a loved one, forgetting that the relationship is the real important part and not just being right. There is a greater good in that. We fear failure or we fail to speak because of how we might appear before others, ourselves at the very center, afraid we might be knocked down a notch or two. Now, this is not to diminish the value that each of us possess, but if we examine honestly our faults, our fears, and our failures, the question we ask, I think, is, is how, central does, uh, how central is the role of self-centeredness and self-exaltation? No, we're not citizens of Babel. We share the heart of our common ancestry. We speak the same language. We share that one lip often opposed to God. They endeavored to build a house for their name, to ascend heaven in their own devising, and the root of all our sin has those same ends in mind. And so God came down. And that is the hope of salvation. And that indeed is the hope of the world. That God came down. And we see that God came down in judgment. And his judgment is a form of love. See, he scatters. Because that's the intent of humanity. To fill his house. He came down to judge the rebellious people. To scatter them. That they might live in accord with his will. God came down in judgment. And so from the offspring of Eve, we see at the end of our passage the far-off ancestor of Abraham. God came down, even from him, 
through Jacob, through Joseph, through David, on down, until God came down in the flesh, the incarnation of his one and only Son, the coming of Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, God came down. And when he came down in Jesus Christ, it was a form of judgment, but not only a condemnation of the wicked, but God came down as an ark of vindication for the righteous who would hide themselves in him. When God came down through the rainbow floor of heaven, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus came down. Jesus came down as the very word of God. Jesus came down as the one true lip for all humanity. And Jesus came down in the flesh only to ascend the cross, the one true sacrifice for sin. And on the cross, Jesus did not come down. So that we who deserve the judgment of God's coming down receive instead the pardon of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. For the offspring of Eve has then crushed the head of the serpent in his coming down as he descends even further to the grave. And yet then he ascends to the right hand of God the Father now and forevermore. See, the antidote to Babel is not simply to forget about oneself. It's not enough simply to remove ourselves from the center because another one must take that place. Another one must have that throne, and we are not him, and he is not us. The scriptures continually tell us that Jesus, the true and final offspring of the woman, is the one around whom all creation centers. And so by way of application, we see that firstly, we confess repeatedly our desires and our designs to displace Christ as the center of our world and the lives of others. This is the lip. This is our confession of sin. With one lip, we confess that we are unworthy and that we are in need of Christ. Secondly, we endeavor to unite with humble followers of Christ sharing that one confession of Christ, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one Savior. And we share this confession with others. See, our task remains the same until the end of our days. And that is to invite God's coming down to condemn the wicked, to vindicate the righteous in Christ. We who follow him speak now with one lip and our lives become to the nation's God's word. The life of Christ lived out through the lives of his people are the lip now that unites all the world in the salvation of God through Jesus Christ. See, we are the inheritors of Pentecost, the spirit of the bride coming down to dwell in and to inspire his people, not to hide from God as Babel in a city, but rather to go, not to ascend on our own, but rather to humble ourselves that he might raise us up to glory. We serve not the towers of our hands, but the risen and ascended Christ. To him be glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this word, living and active now. Have its effect in our life, O Lord, by your grace, your mercy, and your love. Teach us to walk humbly before you, to give our lives for the lives of others, that they might behold Christ and be drawn unto him. 
We pray for your grace to strengthen us to, do, to those very ends. We pray this all in Jesus' name.